Welcome to this week's episode of 13th Floor. I am Cece. I'm Alex. I'm James. And today, we're talking about mysterious disappearances. How you guys feeling? Doing good. Good. Can't wait to make disappearances mysterious again. It's going to happen. If I, if I ran happen. for president, that would be the best hat ever. It would have MDMA on it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. Oh. Very Made myself laugh. sounding. That's James's platform for run when he runs for office. Yeah. And James, are you old enough to be president? I don't think so. Yeah, I know I'm not. Not yet. I'll see about James and his <laughs> slogan, and then I forgot about what we were talking about. Uh. I actually had something I was going to say, but then James had that bolsterous laugh, and it threw me off. Uh. I wasn't prepared for it, and mm. now I don't even know what to say. Now Alex is lost. I am happy to report that since last week, when I couldn't see my notes, I have since gotten my glasses. Uh, so I want to thank Warby Parker, who's not a sponsor, but they should be, <laughs> for getting me my glasses so quickly. Because James, we went in and we ordered the glasses on December 8th, and then they were on my doorstep on the 10th. Wow. Yeah, that, that is very impressive. No joke. Blows <laughs> yeah. my mind. <laughs> That's pretty cool. Yeah, it was really cool. But Gwen basically picked out my glasses for me, which is <laughs> wonderful. It's pretty neat. Yeah, they look good, right, She's Alex? She's got style. And she told you why the other ones are ugly. Yeah, she. <laughs> yeah, I put on some glasses and I said, Gwen, what do you think of this? And she would say, those ones are too big for your face, mommy. And I'd be like, oh, okay. She was right. Yeah, that's what Alex would say. She's right. They looked ridiculous. They didn't look ridiculous. I looked oh. stylish. I looked like a queen. I bet you if I'd asked James, James would have said they all looked nice. Maybe. He James. wouldn't have had the heart to tell me that they looked too big on my face. <laughs> he would have told you. James, would you have been honest with me? I don't know. I probably would have been diplomatic about it. Like That's nice, said- but this is better. <sighs> James, always on the fence with glasses. <laughs> All right, so do we have an icebreaker? Do we have a hearty hello? We've got hearty hellos, you guys, because guess what? We have listeners. We're going to say hello, hello, hello to everybody in India. Oh, wow. India's back on the map. Yeah, and then we also have listeners in Syria. Wow. Yeah, which is craziness to me. And then here in the United States of America, we're going to say hearty hello to everybody in Washington. Have we done Washington recently? I don't think so. I don't know if we have either. Well, I'm going to talk a little bit about Washington later. Love those Mount Rainier cherries. I guess. Um, and I'm going to be embarrassed if it turns out that's in Oregon. <laughs> oh, boy. It's in Washington. That was a joke. Uh-huh. It was not a joke. Gwen says that. Gwen says that that was a joke whenever she says something and she realizes she's wrong. She oh, does. That uh, was a joke. That was just a joke. I was kidding. Mm-hmm. Come on. Mm-hmm. You know me. Of course. I'm always joking about Washington and Oregon. <laughs> <laughs> That's James. James, do we have an icebreaker today? We're We're talking about mysterious disappearances. And so I thought... What is an example, like a memorable example, where you have uh, lost something or something has disappeared and, you know, you're frantically trying to get it? <laughs> oh, Cece, literally every week with the remote. Yeah, it's, it's gone right now, oh my you guys. God. We J- don't know James, where it's at. <laughs> it is so infuriating. I can't I see straight. It's been days. I'm beginning to become permanently cross-eyed from not being able to see straight because <laughs> we don't know where the remote is. It's been like three days. He's and it only ever gosh. goes missing. On Cece's watch. Only on Cece's watch does this thing go missing. Listen, it also goes missing on Gwen's watch, too, because I'm always with her, number one. And then also... It doesn't go missing when I'm with Gwen. I'm just saying. Yeah, it's missing right now, James. And I'll find it eventually. It's somewhere around here. She won't find it, because guess what? She doesn't look. Listen. I'm the one scurrying around <laughs> on the ground, lifting up the couch, lifting up everything to find it. Wow. CC is just like, I'll just use my phone at the, mo- the most inconvenient app ever. Works well, perfectly for me. It works fine, but it's another extra step. Alex. Oh Alex. If it works perfectly, then why are you using the remote? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> this is, exactly, this James. Thank is, you. 
this is one of Alex's biggest pet peeves is when things go missing. So I was like, I well, understand. Like, but also, track like, of your stuff. Get off my back, dude. <laughs> okay, so the remote is Alex's answer. <clears throat> um, <laughs> I feel like Dr. Phil. <laughs> Instead of making things better, <laughs> I'm like <laughs> making them worse. <laughs> Oh, well. Hi, you know, I have two times that things have gone missing and one of them, like I'm pretty certain my mom probably like tried to wash my tank top because I had this beautiful tank top, got it from Express. I was so proud of it. It was purple and it had these beautiful beads along the, the top of it and it was gorgeous and I wore it one time and then guess what? It freaking disappeared and I never saw it again. I'm pretty mm-hmm. certain my mom tried to wash it and just destroyed it because mm. it was a hand wash only. So mystery mm. on that one. I still don't know what happened to it. But the other thing that I lost that really bothered me was when my Tamagotchis went missing when I was younger. Oh. Yeah. yeah. We had two Tamagotchis. I was taking care of my brothers and they disappeared. I could not find them to save my life. They were gone. I was. I just, you know, I said, God, it's okay. They're gone forever. I'm just going to accept it. And then about three weeks later, I found them outside on our back steps. <laughs> the funny, <laughs> the funny thing is, they were camouflage. So yeah. I just, I'll just tell everybody. <laughs> you just couldn't see them. You just couldn't see them. Yeah. <laughs> Cece looked for those Tamagotchis wow. like she looks like for the remote. It was gone. <laughs> Unfortunately, it had rained in between those three weeks, so the Tamagotchis uh, were done. like done forever. But <laughs> yeah. So those are the two waterboarded Tamagotchis. They, yeah, well, unfortunately. I wonder if the remote's been out in the rain now for a couple of days. Oh, <laughs> oh my gosh! Not with the remote, James. What's your answer? Uh, well, funny enough, Chai went missing for a couple of days. What? And Chai is yeah. Chai's the spider that if she bites you, you're going to the hospital. So I was a little concerned, but I told no one because I didn't want them to be concerned. So I, uh, I, I, I did one thing that I, I think was very smart, which is I never took the lid off once I noticed that she was missing to you know try and find her with the lid off. Because if she was in there, she'd probably bolt out and actually go missing. So that's a big mistake, right? So every day I would check with the, the flashlight of my phone. No sign of this creature at all. Oh my God. And uh, again, never took the lid off though. So every time I would lay down, it's like, well, might get bit. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> thankfully, just a few minutes before recording this, actually, it's kind of funny. We're talking about disappearances in the enclosure. So what had happened is she has decided to build a little burrow, uh, even though she's an arboreal. And that's the deal. She just pops underground sometimes. Hmm. James. Yep. Wow. That's the deal. That is horrifying, number one. Slightly. How Slightly. How many days was she gone? <laughs> like two. Oh, one and a half. Something like that. James, you should be, oh my gosh, you need to double, double contain that thing. Because if that <laughs> thing ever popped out, it was missing while I was over there and I saw it mm. like on my foot or something, I would be done. This yeah. this podcast will be finished. I'm, I'm sorry, James. This cannot continue. <laughs> wow. Oh gosh. Okay. That like just that story gives me a heart attack. The funny thing is, she never left the enclosure. That's that's the most interesting thing about it. Hmm. Either that, or she's really smart and has been leaving the enclosure and coming back. Oh, giving you a good night kiss yeah. every night. That. <laughs> Have you have noticed anything stroking your cheek in the middle of the night? Just feel something. Uh, I will now. Yep. <laughs> well, James, this is really mm. off topic, but I'm just curious. Like, do you think that your apartment's haunted? What? I don't think so. Hmm. I don't feel anything. <laughs> well, James. <laughs> Interesting. Okay. But um, I just like I'm thinking. I'm sorry. I'm just thinking back to when I went over to James's place to see his spiders. Did and you see a ghost? No, it's oh. just like I could see it though. You see it having a ghost? <laughs> I could see it having ghosts. Yeah, it's an old yeah. apartment complex. It is. Yeah, very old. Old condo. Are you ragging on his condo? No, he's a very nice condo. There are beautiful oh flowers gosh. out front. Don't insult people like that. Alex, oh my gosh. You're insulting me about the remote. You're insulting me about insulting James, which I'm not insulting James. James, am I insulting you? I don't even know anymore. You guys are uh, cranky. Mm-mm-mm. Yes, we are, James. Grumpy yes. Gus's. 
It all started when Alex spilled marinara on the couch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I got to be part of the uh, ASMR cleanup for that. Yes, I'm sorry, dear listener, you did not get to hear Alex cleaning up the marinara off the couch earlier. Next time I'll let you do it. He did do it very, very nicely, though. He used a fork to scrape it off. Which I wouldn't have to do. Yeah, because if you get a napkin or something, you're going to press it into the couch, and it's going to be a pain in the butt right. to clean. So what I did, I just grabbed it, a it's fork, very and I just lifted I scooped it all up with one scoop, and then I just got a wet towel, and I wiped it off, and it was done. Yeah, we'll see if there's any. Have you guys seen that robot that can clean up spills? No. No, but I'll make sure it's the most amazing thing I've ever seen in my life. I mean that. Like, this is amazing. It, it extends this little tape. And it just picks things up seamlessly, including liquids. It's nuts. James? Seriously, I know it sounds like not interesting, but it is jaw-dropping. This flipping robot that cleans up liquids. Cleans up? Well, how many liquids like, do you Type in robot ketchup. Clean. Oh. Let's see. That's it. So it could yeah. it could have come here and cleaned up Alex's marinara from his Without a molecule of marinara on the couch. That's the crazy part. I still and it doesn't it doesn't use a liquid. It's literally just this little extendable platform that's really good at getting under things. I still don't want that thing in my house. I would rather use have Alex use his little fork. I don't trust <laughs> I don't trust a robot in my house, please. Did you know that this is our second mysterious disappearances episode? This is our second mysterious disappearances episode. And this one brought to us this week by Gemma. Thanks again, Gemma, for submitting this topic. I thought you were gonna say something mm. like hostess or something. Because it sounds like you're getting ready to go into an ad. It was like, this week brought to you by no. Hostess Snack Cake. Great Channel Legends. I'm just thanking our wonderful listener for submitting a topic. And you guys, if you want to throw any into any topics into the vase, our vase is still pretty full. But you know what? It could always use a little more love. So if you have any topics that you want to hear us talk about, especially into 2022... Definitely send them our way on Instagram, or if you're a patron, you can send them in on Patreon. By the way, all of our Patreon subscribers, you guys get priority vase. You guys get the special Patreon vase. So we do a Patreon episode every uh, month where we draw from the Patreon vase, and it's got much, much less submissions into it. So mm-hmm. you have a much higher chance of getting your topic discussed. Are you guys ready to talk about mysterious disappearances? Let's do it. And listen, Gemma wanted us to talk about two people specifically. Thanks for sending it in, Gemma. Yes. <laughs> um, she wanted us to talk about D.B. Cooper and Jimmy Hoffa, and I have decided to take D.B. Cooper, a.k.a. D.B. Coops, a.k.a. The Coopinator. The Coopinator. Yeah, and I've I've known for a long time who D.B. Cooper was. Like, I had a cursory knowledge of the story. Like, he hijacked a plane and then jumped out of it with money and stuff. But it was kind of nice to get, like, into the nitty-gritty of the case. I know more than I've ever known before, you guys. And I've always known that people are obsessed with the case, but I did not realize that people were so obsessed that they're, like, Cooper cons. Did you know that? <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome yeah they're a cooper con so anyways if you're like me and you just know like the major details of the story like he jumped out of a plane and stuff let me give you the 411 okay let me, okay. Let me dig into this in order to do this we've got to go back to november 24th 1971 the day before thanksgiving everyone was probably getting their turkey and dressings ready for like nice overnight roast when a man who identified as Dan Cooper, not D.B. Cooper, which I'm going to talk about a little bit later, but Dan, he walked into the Portland International Airport and he used cash to buy a one-way ticket to Seattle, Washington, which was one of our hearty hellos today. Hello. <laughs> yes. Uh, anyways, ticket cost him $20, which according to in2013dollars.com, which is an inflation calculator, that's about $137-ish in today's money. But yeah, if you guys want to get really depressed, go take a look at the inflation calculator. You want to get even more depressed, look at it six months from now. Yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) But listen, I'm not here to bring everybody down the dumps, okay? I am here to talk about D.B. Coops. So he he got his ticket on this little jet. It was a Boeing 727-100. 
there were 36 passengers on board, plus the pilot, the first officer. There was a flight engineer and then two flight attendants named Tina Mucklow and Florence Schaffner. So the flight takes off. They're up in the air in Coops, who's described as a middle-aged white dude in a dapper-looking suit. And I don't know if he had sunglasses or not. I know that in the FBI composite profile picture that they've created of him, the little piece of artwork, sometimes he has sunglasses on, sometimes he doesn't. I think he kind of looks like Agent Coulson from S.H.I.E.L.D. Oh, okay. Sometimes, like an older version, I guess. Maybe a little sadder version. But he discreetly passes this little note to the flight attendant, Florence Schaffner. She puts it in her pocket without reading it because apparently – she was used to getting notes from like dudes on planes. Like, Hey, this is my number. Call me stuff like that. So she didn't even think of it. She just put it in her pocket. and was like, I'm going to continue working. And she didn't look at it. And then she goes, goes about her duties. And then when she passes DB again, he's discreetly like, you best read that note I gave you. Cause I got a bomb in my briefcase. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so she's thinking, Oh, like, is this for real? And so she goes and she reads the note. She alerts the other crew members to the shenanigans going on the plane. And the pilot is like, I'm not going to mess with this. So he air he calls air traffic control. They call the FBI. The madness begins. And we don't have the exact verbiage of the ransom note because DB wisely instructed the flight attendant to give it back to him because it's evidence. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, but Schaffner said it demanded 200 K in uh, cash in $20 bills. Very important. And then also four parachutes. And if he didn't get what he wanted, he'd blow up the plane with his little bomb. And he did show it to Schaffner, I think. He had her sit next to him and he showed her, like, he opened up the briefcase and there was wires and two little red cylinders, which they think were dynamite. And so it's like, okay, this this may actually be your bomb. So another thing that is very, like, it shows how well planned this is. Because if he's planning on jumping out of the airplane, which if he's asking for parachutes, that's what the police are obviously thinking he's going to do. If he asks for anything smaller in bills than 20, then it might be too heavy and weigh him down when he jumps out of the plane. Yeah. And if he asks for anything too big, then that's going to be suspicious to pass, pass off while shopping in the real world. So $20 is the perfect denomination. And then he also wanted bills with random serial numbers, not sequential, which I think is something that a lot of people would like not think about. And then he may have wanted four parachutes to infer that he was planning on possibly taking a hostage and having them jump out of the plane with him. So it's like that will lessen the chance that they're going to give him dummy parachutes, like fakes tampered with. Wow. Yeah. Smart. So anyways, the, the pilot, the FBI, and the airline, get, they get everything together on the ground and are they're ready for the handoff. They're like, okay, we've got DB's cash and stuff. Let's go hand it to him. So DB has the pilot land the plane in Seattle for the trade-off. Coops demands that the handoff be made by someone who was solo. So a Northwest Airline employee did it, and he handed all the deliverables to attendant Tina Mucklow. And then once... Coops was pleased with the trade-off. He's like, okay, I got my 200K. He released the 36 passengers, so all of his little hostages. And he also released flight attendant uh, Florence Schaffner. He kept Tina Mucklow, the pilot, and the first officer and the flight engineer on board. And he made all of them cram into the little tiny cockpit before taking off once more. And this time he wanted to go to Mexico City. He's like, that's where I'm going. But they're like, we can't just go to Mexico City. There's not enough fuel. It's not going to get there. So he's like, okay, fine. We'll refuel in Reno. So they. this is where things get interesting because Cooper ordered the pilot to fly below an altitude of 10,000 feet and to keep the airspeed below 150 knots, which is apparently, I learned this today, an altitude that an experienced skydiver would be able to manage. Oh. So it's like he was thinking about that. And then also at 10,000 feet, they wouldn't have to depressurize the cabin. So when he opens the door on the plane to jump out, there won't be that huge burst of air. Like, you know, everything kind of being sucked out of the plane. So at 8.24 PM, the crew still locked up in the cockpit at this point. They have no idea what he's doing in there. They notice that the plane dips a little bit. And this is when they think that DB opened the door on the plane and made his getaway. 
because when they made it to Reno and landed the plane, Coops was nowhere seen. And he never was seen or heard from again, you guys. Wow. And there's so many theories as to who he was and what happened to him after his airborne exit. The FBI was stumped. They're still stumped. 50 years later, we have no clue who this guy was really. And investigators, they tried to find out who Dan Cooper was because they weren't sure if maybe like he might have used his real name or a fake name, which I'm sorry. If you're going to hijack a plane, why would you use your real name? You know what I mean? Right. <laughs> so anyway. Hey, everybody. Yeah. Fun fact. Here's my ID. Yeah, exactly. It makes no sense. But a fun fact here is that the whole D.B. Cooper thing, Dan versus D.B., they did look into a guy from Oregon named D.B. Cooper, but very quickly ruled him out as a suspect, but not before media got wind of the guy's name. And so one reporter called Dan Cooper D.B. Cooper, and then another reporter started calling him D.B. Cooper. And then next thing you know, everybody's calling him D.B. Cooper. So that's how that name kind of came about, even though he technically wow. went by the name Dan. Oh, yeah. interesting. Yeah. Um, but during the entirety of the investigation, police considered some 800 suspects per FBI.gov. And a ton of people have apparently tried to claim that they were D.B. Cooper over the years or say, oh, my family member was D.B. Cooper. But so far, everybody's been ruled out. Whenever somebody comes forward and says, hey, I'm the real D.B. Cooper, the police check their fingerprints because there were fingerprints from Dan Cooper on the flight. So they had mm-hmm. fingerprints from him, but they've never been able to find a match. Because remember, this is in 1971. That's interesting. Yeah. 1971, which was a long time ago, they weren't really the most tech and forensic savvy at that point yet. So here's the trippy thing about this to me is that whoever you ask about this case, all of the amateur sleuths, at least so many of them have different opinions as to who DB actually was. There's so many different options. And I guess it really shouldn't surprise me too much, but I personally cannot dive into hardly any of them just because there's not enough time. There's so many. But I read a really well-written article on OregonLive.com that spoke with some of the various loose bloggers and podcasters who've dug into this case over the years, and everyone will point someone else. But some of the top higher profile contenders over the years um, that some people still say, hey, this was the real D.B. Cooper. They were Richard Floyd McCoy, Kenneth Christensen, Robert Rackstraw, and Dwayne Weber. Those were four of the big big ones. Ugh. And it's funny because some of the family members of these men will get into arguments about it. Like, be like my family member was D.B. No, my family member was D.B. Gotta get those movie rights. <laughs> yeah, well, Robert Rackstraw actually looked quite a bit like the FBI composite of D.B., but the FBI apparently ruled him out. I'm not sure how they ruled him out or what criteria knocked him out they of the asked him and he said, I wasn't there. I didn't do it. <laughs> there have obviously been a ton of TV specials and documentaries and movies that have been made or inspired by the story, but per crimemuseum.org, which is where I actually got a large majority of my research for all of this. A woman named Marla Cooper came forward in 2011 claiming that her uncle, L.D. Cooper, was the real Dan Cooper. And she apparently overheard a conversation that he had where he was talking about how our money problems are over because he had apparently successfully hijacked a plane. So who knows if that's true or not. She claims that they never actually saw the money because apparently when he jumped out of the plane, he lost all of it in the skydive. That doesn't sound very believable. Yeah, so authorities are like very on the fence with it. But what did happen to that money, you guys? That sweet, sweet 200K. What is it? What happened? Which according to the inflation calculator is actually worth a cool 1.3 million today. In 1980, an eight-year-old boy actually was walking along the Columbia River when he came across bundles of $20 bills, and they had the same serial numbers from the lot that D.B. Coops got away with, which leads investigators, and this is the pervading theory. Is that the word? Pervading? Yep. Prevailing. 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 There you go, James. It's like, I know that this is wrong. The prevailing theory mm-hmm. is that Coops did not survive his jump, which bum, bum, bum. I know it kind of makes sense if you stop thinking about it. They initially thought this man was an experienced skydiver, but apparently he used some of the ropes from two of the parachutes 
to tie the money to himself for the jump. And they say that he ripped apart the two best shoots, which an experienced skydiver would know better. They would look at these shoots and go, these are the two good ones. These two suck. Apparently he jumped with the two that sucked. And then additionally, the weather was dismal the night that he jumped out of the plane. It was very cold. It was very rainy. And he jumped out of the plane in some very rough terrain, wearing a suit and tie only. He had no warm clothing. So some people think that he may have had helpers on the ground, but it was such a remote area that it may have been very unlikely. And some people believe that the guy may have been ex-military, which may have given him a better shot, I guess, but... A lot of people think that he was just in over his head and that he didn't really know what he was doing, even though he was cool as a cucumber through the entire thing. But a lot of people think he died. I think that's really a lot of the attachment to the story is just what a cool persona he seems to have. Well, in in the new season of Loki that came out, they made a little joke about D.B. Cooper. About how, oh, yeah, yeah, Loki was Loki was DB Cooper. Was DB Cooper. <laughs> Did I just spoil it for you, James? You haven't watched it, have you? I no worries there. It's the first episode. Listen, James, that television show has been out since this summer, so I don't feel yeah. guilty. Get okay, on it, James. Get yeah. On it. Anyways, experts say that also during the jump, DB Cooper's shoes would have been blown off of his feet when he jumped out of the plane, <laughs> so he probably would not have had you know, very much luck navigating barefoot in the freezing cold mountainous area. So, but there are, there are some people who were apparently driving around not too far from where he was suspected of maybe landing who claim to have seen a well-dressed man walking in the rain along the side of the road. But for me, when I hear an account like that, it's kind of like, you just want to be a part of this story. Like, did you really yeah. see that? Or is this just you wanting to insert yourself in a very interesting piece of history? Yeah. One of my last notes on the whole, like, is he in the woods? Just what happened to him on May 18th, 1980, Mount St. Helens did erupt. So if there were still clues out in the wild from this, chances are they are no more probably would have been, you know, destroyed. So Uh. last month, Vancouver hosted CooperCon 2021 to mark the Mm -hmm. 50th anniversary of the hijacking. And there are a lot of there were a lot of TV and podcast personalities hosting panels there and just kind of meeting people like they had their little table, like the little eight year old boy who apparently found the bundles of the twenty dollar bills in the woods in nineteen eighty. Does he show up with the sign stuff? Uh, I think he was there. I think he was there. Uh, the daughter of the pilot of the plane was there, and then a lot of FBI and science experts who studied the evidence over the years were all there. That's wild. Yeah. And in 2016, the FBI finally closed the case, saying they wouldn't be allocating any more resources to this case. So chances are that if we do ever find out who D.B. Cooper was, it it would probably be done by an amateur sleuth. I like that they accomplished about as much as they do on anything else. (laughs) Yeah, <laughs> with D.B. Cooper. That's true. Well, some people, <laughs> some people also think that the person who did this did it specifically with the goal of making the FBI look like they were incompetent. Because there was some guy, I can't well, remember the guy's name. <laughs> I can't remember the guy's name, but there was a guy who's maybe, I think it was niece or something, who had been killed in an incident that also involved the FBI. And so could have been like a revenge thing. I don't know if that's... Sounds a little far-fetched to me, but this case, when I was reading through all of it, it was very reminiscent of the Bluegrass Conspiracy, in my opinion, which, if you've never heard of that, dear listener, it's a Kentucky-based kind of drug-running scandal-type story. There's lots more to it than just that, but one of the key players in that (laughs) crime is an ex-Lexington cop named... Copped? An an ex-Lexington cop named Drew Thornton. He tried parachuting out of a plane in 1985 with thousands of dollars of cash strapped to him and then 150 pounds of cocaine strapped to his body very clearly carrying way too much weight because then he ended up free falling into the driveway of an older gentleman's home in tennessee and was basically flattened his bad news bears but again there's a lot more of this case but the whole jumping out of the plane and just kind of you know possibly just disappearing even though mm. Drew Thornton didn't disappear, he he was very very clearly killed. But 
Anyways, I read a book about the bluegrass conspiracy called The Bluegrass Conspiracy by Sally Denton over the summer. Mm-hmm. Very good book. Highly recommend it. But it is very police reporty. So if I think that the the former news reporter in me was very like, oh, it's like I'm reading, you know, an FBI or not FBI, a police report. And so I thoroughly enjoyed that book. But it's a very interesting case. Highly recommend it. Anyways, you guys. That is D.B. Cooper. Do you guys have any questions for me? Uh, no, this is a little more interesting than I thought, but the, this kind of takes to one of my favorite movie memories. I remember a movie I went to go see I used to love. I, I would be interested to watch it now and see if I still like it. I probably would. <laughs> Without a paddle. <laughs> Without a paddle. I've never seen it. <sighs> yeah. It was, a, it was a very funny co- comedy, like very much of its era yeah. um, at the time, but it was... I thought it was I feel very, like that was like the last thing Seth Green ever did, like other than making shows. Well, it was like the only movie that I remember Matthew Lillard, Lillard being in, other than uh, the Scooby Doo movies. Yeah, and it was it was just like it was so good. Then they did it without a panel too, but it had like all new characters, like straight to DVD. No, oh my gosh, not good. Why do we have to do that? I don't yeah. understand why we have to ruin these movies. Um, but uh, <laughs> and they find, I think they find the body of DB Cooper. Really? Yeah, and they find his money and stuff. I didn't know that D.B. Cooper was in that movie. Yeah. Well. I totally misjudged Seth Green. He's been in a lot of things since then. Wow. Every time I think of Seth Green, I think of him in Austin Powers. Yeah, same. Yeah. That's that's a good <laughs> I just think of him as voicing character. people in Robot Chicken. Apparently, he was uncredited as a fighter pilot in Godzilla King of the Monsters. Alex, what do you think of that? Very Did you know that? No, I didn't know that. Very cool. Yeah. Well, James, you're talking about. Well, why don't why don't I go next? What? Because James, I feel like you and James are perfect bookends. Oh, okay. For this all right. I actually episode. agree with that. Like you all have. James, you're not supposed to agree with him. You're supposed to agree with me. <laughs> Y'all got a lot of excitement. Y'all got you, you all got these. You know the legends of disappearing, right? I've got a little bit of an unknown. That so, I wanted to share with people. So James and I are the Oreo cookies, and you're the cream. I'm the cream, and depending on who you are, I'm either the best or the worst part. Yeah, it's going to be 15 minutes about the remote, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it is. I was going to chronicle his life. <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right. Enough about the remote, Alex. Who are you talking about? And then on July 31st, it got it had batteries replaced with Duracell. Alex from Energizer. Okay. All right. <laughs> um, all right. So I had the mysterious disappearance. Um, you know, you're all people. There is a beautiful bookends to this episode, but I decided to go with someone off the beaten path. A little man by the name of Raul Wallenberg. Now, I don't think size wise he was actually small, but you know, whatever. Born in August 4th or on August 4th, 1912 in Stockholm, Sweden. Uh, he went on to study in the United States in the 30s, and then he started uh, a career in Sweden. So, you know, all it's pretty normal life so far. Uh, but I'm sure a lot of people see what's coming here in the from 30s. Is he going to disappear? Well, <laughs> so, however, <laughs> bum, bum, he bum. was recruited by in 1944 to the War Re- Refugee Board, was a which was a World War II initiative mm-hmm. to help get Jews out of oh. everywhere. Um and so he made he he made it into this diplomat position and his job was to in particular to save the Hung- as many Hungarian Jews as possible. So he was moved to Budapest, which is in Hungary, where he had to lead the charge in this monumental task. And the funny thing is Raul had zero experience as a diplomat. But you know, this is a time where they're grasping and recruiting everybody, right? Yeah. If you can do anything, they'll, they'll, they're going to get you. But uh, he somehow manages to go on and lead one of the most extensive and successful rescue efforts during the Holocaust. So let's set the stage before we get a little bit more into the meat and potatoes of it all. So by the time Roll was brought on, which was in July of 1944, um, and before he had been moved to Budapest, the Germans had already forced their former, now flaky ally, um, <laughs> Hungary, to work with them. 
because they were getting a little skittish because they saw um, Germany losing some things. And they're like, oh, maybe we should go. Maybe we should have gone with the U.S. <laughs> and, um, and and Germany was like, eh, no, we're going to storm you and we're going to take you over. and We're going to put someone else in power that agrees with us. Um, and so this led to the deportation of 400,000 Jews, almost uh, all of which were entirely going to Auschwitz. Mm-hmm. Um, 320 of them, 320,000 were killed upon arrival and the rest were forced into labor. So by the time Raul had shown up, only 200,000 Jews remained in uh, Budapest. So that's when he starts planning on uh, how to help them uh, because Hungary is on the verge of sending the rest of them out of the country. So with the aid of the Swedish government, Pro starts handing out these certificates of protection uh, to the Jews all around Budapest. And uh, he uses these certificates are funded by the WRB in Sweden. And what they do is with all this money, they, Establish hospitals, nurseries, soup kitchens, and like thirty safe houses to keep all these people safe. And these thirty, all these places, create what's called the international ghetto in Budapest. And these papers that he's giving out to these people allows them to be protected by Sweden, who was a neutral country, okay. which is gives you actually a lot of power uh, during the wartime because. One thing countries don't want when they're fighting a war is another enemy. <laughs> so right. that's the last thing you need. And it's actually kind of a unique situation where you could pretend to be neutral, but you're not. Um, yeah. And use that as power. And that's that's exactly what they did. That's kind of what we did up until Pearl Harbor, really. Yeah, it is. It is. We just kind of like had our finger in it a little bit, but yeah. didn't jump in until, like you said, Pearl Pearl Harbor really kicked all that off. Now, um, he's handing out these certificates. Um, he even did so personally. Like they would be marching Jews west towards Austria, and he would be like following the lines and ha- giving people these uh, these certificates. And there, he would even be giving them forged ones. And then he'd be like pulling as many people as he possibly could out of these lines. So. Uh, the cool thing is, is uh, a bunch of other people joined in after they saw what he was doing. So various countries hmm. and very rich businessmen started doing similar things where they were part of neutral countries. And so they were able to offer very similar services. Hmm. Now, that, that because they're doing this, they're saving all these people and defending as many as possible. But by the time the war uh, comes to an end, finally... Uh, about 100,000 Jews remained. And a lot of the credit of those 100,000 lives is really given to Raul wow. uh, and his endeavor. And most of uh, that is just attributed to everything he did and the the support that he really ushered in during that time. So when the Germans lost and the Soviet army storms Budapest... Uh, something weird happens. The Soviet government arrests him. Allegedly, it, it, he's arrested due to suspicion of espionage activity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they arrest this man who just helped all these people. And then he is very quickly removed from everything. Mm-hmm. And then the Soviets go on to say that in 1947, that he dies in jail from a heart attack. But apparently there are witnesses that had been in that jail that saw him after those days. Hmm. So it's like, did he ever, it sounds like he probably never got out. Did he get out? Did he get to drink some vodka and he just enjoyed Russia? Did he, he probably, probably honestly he probably stayed at the at the jail until he died? But we don't know why the Russians took him and kept him when he wasn't really doing anything against them, as far as I know. So it's just mm-hmm. very weird. And so Sweden finally 
pronounced him legally dead uh, 71 years after he disappeared. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So they just, there's, that's bizarre. No one knows why or where he died. They just claimed, oh yeah, he had a heart attack. He died. But then there's supposedly witness accounts of seeing him in the jail system after that. Are there any, like, any ideas as to why he was taken? They, or was it just... The, uh, the, the claim is that the Russians said it was espionage activity, but it's like, you're, you're on the same side. But you, another thing is, like, Russians kind of, even though they worked with the U.S. to accomplish a goal of <laughs> destroying the Nazis... They did not like each other, right? They no. really... In, in my opinion, uh, the, the tremendous amount of communism is founded, founded upon the, the concept of spite. And so, I mean, I can think of two Soviet-era jokes that remind me of that. <laughs> you know, there's a little girl playing uh, in the yard with blue jeans on, listening to rock and roll on a radio, and uh, drinking a Coca-Cola, and her neighbor sees it. You know, and those were all three American things that were not allowed. And he runs over and he's like, little girl, what are you doing? You're you're going to get arrested by the secret police. Oh, my gosh, this is crazy. Where is your mother? And she says, uh, my mother's uh, in jail. And he goes, well, well, you you can't keep doing this. You're going to end up getting in enormous trouble. Uh, where's your father? She says, he's in jail, too. And he says, well, don't you have somebody looking out for you? Where's your older brother? He's in jail, too. How do you think I got all this stuff? <laughs> so the joke being that she reported, she reported them, as, them as spies. and yeah. Wow. And then another joke is uh, an American, a Frenchman, and a Soviet, they, uh, they come across a, a genie's lamp. And, you know, they rub it. The genie comes out. And he says, I'll give you whatever you want. But there's a little catch to it. Whatever you get, your neighbor gets double." And uh, the American says, oh, okay, I'm, I'm cool with that. I want a big mansion. And shortly thereafter, his, his neighbor calls him. He's like, you won't believe this. I just won a lottery. You have two mansions. And he knows from that, like, oh, that means I get one. <laughs> so he's all excited. And the Frenchman's like, I just want the most beautiful woman on earth. And he's like, Gene's like, done. Frenchman gets a phone call from his neighbor. He's like, you're not going to believe this. These two amazingly beautiful women just decided to just hook up with me. I can't believe it. Frenchman's all excited because he knows what's waiting for him when he goes home, right? <laughs> and then it comes to the Soviet, and he's like, you know, what do you want? And he says, uh, so whatever I wish for, my neighbor gets double? And he says, yeah. He says, blind me in one eye. <laughs> so, you know, that kind of culture I can definitely see leading to this guy's arrest is the bottom line. Wow. Well, James. <laughs> <laughs> two two Soviet era jokes for you all. I have wow. No response to that. All I can really say is I want to hear about Jimmy Hoffa. Me too. Ah, okay. Hey. Yeah. Jimmy Hoffa, probably the, one of the most notorious missing human beings ever. Um, and I'm really glad that we decided to draw this now because some new things have come to light. Um, I mean, I'm talking like three weeks ago. Yeah. Ooh. So. Here's the deal with Jimmy Hoffa. Jimmy Hoffa is associated with two things, being missing and being in charge of the Teamsters, which was a uh, massive, massive, well, I mean, still is, it still exists. It's, it's still big, but nowhere near what it was, a uh, labor union. So little backstory on, on Jimmy here. When he was seven, his uh, dad died of lung disease. Mm. And, there wasn't a lot of programs for stuff. So when he was 14, he dropped out of school and started doing full-time manual labor work just to put food on the table for his family. So fast forward a few years, and he's uh, at a laundry worker's strike. This was not unionized. And he meets this girl named Josephine, and she's a laundry worker, and she's striking, and they hit it off. Bear in mind, he's been doing manual labor for years at this point. And they end up getting married and having two kids, James P. Hoffa and Barbara. So they're doing all right. It's kind of like the American dream. They pay like less than seven grand for their house. <laughs> but, but then again, you know, that was in like 1939. But still, so as you might imagine, growing up having to support his family so early on in life, um, and I'm talking grueling labor with very low wages, 
not great working condition, not safe working condition, no job security whatsoever. You just get replaced the minute something happens. So it was a kind of scenario where you're working really, really hard in a really dangerous place. And if you get hurt, you're, they're just going to replace you immediately. There's no accountability at all. So he ends up meeting a union who happens to be part of the grocery chain he was working at. And when I say he joins, I mean he creates. Now, that in of itself, I think, is just extremely impressive because bear in mind, he's still a teen at this time. And he starts trying to organize a union. So he's kind of got this leadership quality right out the gate. And of course, he ends up being leader of that very same union shortly thereafter. So 32, he refuses to work for what he called an abusive shift foreman. So he just quit and ended up becoming a, just a full-time union organizer. He, uh, he led the local 299 of the Teamsters, and that was in Detroit, which is, by the way, not where he was from. He's from Indiana, but they moved to Detroit when he was rather young, like 10, give or take. So he'd been in Detroit for a long time. That's where he met his wife, et cetera. And they even, that's where they bought their house. Anyway, so at the time that, that he had joined the Teamsters, they had 75,000 members. So pretty good number. And they'd also been around for 30 years. So this was a rather old union and a rather successful one when he joined in. Hmm. So that in and of itself is a testament to how functional it was working. Now, here's the thing that a lot of people don't know about unions, although Jimmy Hoffa's disappearance certainly shed a lot of light on that, <laughs> is a lot of it is linked to the mafia, to organized crime, mafia specifically. And that's the case even now. I mean, I was watching some kind of business news program a few months back, and <laughs> there was this union leader that they were interviewing and the guy was like straight out of the Sopranos. Like he had a ring on every finger. It was it was laughable how clearly mafiosa this guy was. But anyway, <laughs> so at the time, these unions, especially the trucking union uh, in, in Michigan, was pretty much controlled by the mafia. So what does he do? He, he gets in bed with gangsters pretty much. And... Because he's willing to play ball with these gangsters, he really, really starts rising to the top. And he actually, this is just so weird to think about because this is something I hadn't considered until I looked into Jimmy Hoffa. But, you know, just as businesses compete with one another, unions would actually compete with one another. So sometimes you would actually have competing unions fighting over authority and power and control in a particular business sector, which is really weird to think about um, on several levels. But that was actually one of the things Hoffa did really well. It wasn't just about, you know, workers' rights and all that. It was, it was actually defending the Teamsters from other unions. And when I say defending, I don't mean verbally. They would straight up raid each other, okay? Wow. So... He does really well at that, and he ends up being like president of the local 299, which is a truck driver union, and he had never driven a semi in his life. So he's the head of a trucker union despite never being a trucker ever. So you should bear in mind also this was in 46, and as a result, there was still a war effort going on. And so he actually – was drafted <laughs> in World War II, and he argued, hey, I need to run this trucking union because the freight needs to run because war supplies. Okay. And so he wasn't drafted for that very reason. Indeed, is it, is it a argument. decent argument? I won't. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. I think it's a good argument, to be fair. Um, so he wasn't drafted despite never finishing really – middle school, let alone college. That was usually like the argument back then. Like, well, I'm, I'm getting a doctorate, so I can't go to war. Um, this case, no. So anyway, in 52, he becomes national vice president of, of the Teamsters, which is in, huge, wow. huge. Again, remember, 75,000 members in 33. More now, right? 
And the reason why is because there was actually, again, this is a great example of how whenever there's a conflict, especially in when you're dealing with, you know, unions and things like that, where the free market doesn't play a direct role in how they form. Uh, there's a lot of you scratch my back kind of stuff. Again, yeah. mafia. Um, basically, Dave Beck was the successor. He was the president at the time to Tobin. And Tobin had been president for like 50 years or something. And there was actually a revolt against Tobin. But Hoffa quelled it. Hoffa calmed everybody down by voicing support for Beck, Tobin's successor. So as a result, Beck appoints him vice president. So, again, it's uh. it's uh, back scratching all the way down. So <laughs> they moved their headquarters from Indianapolis to D.C. Big shock there. Again, they're trying to directly influence the way U.S. politics is, is being done. Um, again, I, I hope I'm not coming across as condemning because even though I do know that, you know, a lot of this is shady and greedy and and organized crime related, I do understand that there was a serious underlying problem that they were attempting to remedy. So this isn't I'm not trying to be judgmental about this. I'm just trying to report the facts, but it's hard not to color it with certain language yeah. anyway. So what ends up happening later on, uh, like 57, he becomes president. And every time there's a convention, that's when like big announcements are made. And he was he was made vice president at a convention and he was made president at a convention for the Teamsters. So whenever he became president, he actually <laughs> um, he did so because his, the guy who came just before him back, who I previously mentioned, he actually uh, pled the fifth <laughs> 140 times oh my God. <laughs> during during a uh, Senate committee on improper activities in labor management. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that did not fly well. So he ended up going to jail for fraud. <laughs> so that's when Hoffa became president. And again, this shows you the kind of environment where this is happening. You've got tons of people breaking the law. You've got literal... Cosa Nostra running a lot of things and he's right in the middle of all this. And of course he's skyrocketing to the top uh, largely because he plays ball with these folks. So anyway, what ends up happening is he does such a great job that, it, I mean, it, he becomes kind of a, a household name before he vanishes because of, of all the successful things. I mean, he was on TV and everything, you know, just a, a, a big deal. Right. So, that was during the, the, the time that uh, this had all happened and he had become president. He starts getting investigated himself. Big shock. Again, his predecessor is in jail for fraud, right? So in 57, just a few months later, really, he gets arrested for allegedly <laughs> trying to bribe an aide to the Senate committee. Ooh. He said he didn't. And because there was no evidence, he was acquitted. But it did lead to more investigations and more arrests and more indictments. And when JFK was elected, he appointed Robert Kennedy to uh, look over some stuff. Ooh. And that was largely because Kennedy, Robert, uh, really wanted Hoffa to be convicted earlier on. And he was actually a counsel to the subcommittee that was investigating him. Huh. So he's now attorney general. He's very powerful himself. So he ends up creating what I'm, mean, this is actually what they called it. The get Hoffa squad. Oh, really? So they're all straight up after him. And a few years later, 63, he gets indicted for jury tampering in Tennessee, charged with bribery of a grand juror. Oh my God. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, he gets convicted. He gets sentenced to eight years in prison. And while he's on bail, he gets convicted in a second trial. This trial was in Tennessee, right? This trial is in Chicago for one count of conspiracy, three counts of mail and wire fraud, and improper use of the Teamsters pension fund. Wow. So he gets sentenced to five years in Chicago uh -oh. and eight years in Tennessee. So he spends three years appealing. Doesn't work out for him. <laughs> So he has to spend, and this is an interesting thing. Like what happens when you get arrested for two different things in two different states? 
you get an aggregate prison sentence. So it does add up. And he actually served at uh, uh, Pennsylvania at Lewisburg Federal Penitentiary. So not Tennessee or Chicago. So when he was in prison, he gets replaced naturally because you can't have a president in, in prison. Bear in mind, his predecessor was in prison too. So we have two concurrent Teamster presidents who have been arrested for fraud. <laughs> so wow. Frank Fritz, Frank Fitzsimmons becomes the acting president. And Hoffa wanted to use him as a puppet. And Fitzsimmons was like super loyal to Hoffa. Really liked him, had known him a long time, was also in Detroit, etc. I mean, really, he probably wouldn't have gotten anywhere without Hoffa's help. So did he help Hoffa? No, uh, because, you know, now he's in jail and it's it's Fitzsimmons' time to shine, right? So, <laughs> right. so now he's calling the shots, and Hoffa does not like this one bit. Oh, boy. Okay? Yeah. So now we have – so we had unions fighting businesses, and that evolved into unions fighting with unions over control of businesses. And now we have a union infighting, like a little civil war – over control of the union itself. So what ends up happening is Hoffa is in prison and he ends up resigning. Hmm. Um, he's, he's not happy about it, quite frankly. And after he gets out five years into his 13-year sentence, because, I kid you not, Nixon commuted it to time served. Wow. Nothing shady about that. Yeah. And uh, he was actually given a 1.75 million lump sum termination by the Teamsters retirement. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Which something tells me your average union member doesn't get a retirement like that. No, but whatever. So. Yeah. So despite the fact that Nixon did this for him, um, he actually accused their administration, especially John Mitchell, who was the attorney general, of depriving him of his rights. Because he's not allowed, you know, after that commutation to manage any labor organization. He's like, no. <laughs> Again, the guy got one $1.75 million. And bear in mind, that was in the 70s. So it's a considerable sum of money. Yeah. But no, that's, that's not enough. So he sues to try and invalidate that restriction. Um, yeah. Wow. Which is, I mean, I think about that and I'm like, oh, my God. So – as a result, and this was like right after Watergate, too, that he decides to sue. <laughs> so, exactly. I mean, it's like he had been waiting for a couple of years for, for something to happen to Nixon. And who knows? Maybe I'm going to theorize maybe Watergate had something to do with his political opponents, maybe the mafia. But anyway, um, he did not win that court battle because the judge was like going over it and it's pretty ironclad. I mean, it's, it's actually kind of laughable that he even attempted to. So you got to remember though, this guy was very useful to the mafia. And now all of a sudden he's making a lot of noise and rattling a lot of cages and he just won't bow out, you know, like they give him $1.75 million, right. but now he's creating this kind of infighting. So there's a fella in the mafia named Anthony Provenzano and he was a Teamsters local leader in New Jersey and he was a national vice president during Hoffa's second term as president. So they were friends too, by the way. But uh, here's what happened. Remember that feud uh, th that he started in prison? Did not rub Anthony the right way. Oh, boy. <laughs> so, yeah. So in 73 and 74, he asked Anthony, hey, you know, will you support me throwing my hat in? He's like, no, no. In fact, I will. This is this is actually what he said. He said, "I will pull your guts out and kidnap your grandchildren oh if you try to throw your hat back in the ring." Wow. Now, a sane person would probably say, "Okay, I'm going to go retire with my 1.75 million in 70s uh, <laughs> estimation cash," but he did not. So, one thing that uh, is interesting to note about Provenzano is that uh, two of his union opponents were murdered. Oh. And two of the people who had uh, mentioned like, hey, this guy's not up to no good, they were assaulted. So not somebody you mess with is the bottom line. That's kind of the thing to uh, 
well. take home from that. So the FBI was looking into all these connections at the time, and they think that a lot of people were in the mafia were sort of mediating between Hoffa and Provenzano, and uh, that includes these three brothers, um, Anthony Giaclione and his brother Vito, and uh, a third brother whose name I actually don't know. But anyway, <laughs> they'd been doing all that. So they, they organized like a little meeting with Hoffa, and uh, Hoffa's own son, the guy, the little kid I mentioned earlier, um, he said, and this is a quote, Dad was pushing so hard to get back in office. I was increasingly afraid that the mob would do something about it. And he was actually convinced that this peace meeting was a setup. Well, after that peace meeting, he went missing. So, yeah. Um, He actually was going to a restaurant. He stopped at the office of his friend, Louis Linto, who was a former president of the Teamsters uh, Local 614, and he now ran a limo service. And, uh... Again, this is another fun example. They had actually been bitter enemies during their careers because, again, mm-hmm. and uh, at the time, though, they, they ended up softening because, you know, they were no longer direct competitors at the time. So he calls his wife in front of a hardware store, which is right behind the restaurant where he was supposed to go to. And uh, he was complaining to his wife. He's like, Giacleone not shown up. I, I, I think he's stood me up. So... She, his wife says, yeah, I haven't heard anybody. And he goes, well, I'll be home by four. So grill steaks. And some people saw him standing by his car and pacing and being irritated. And uh, that's it. That's all we got. We don't know what happened. <laughs> so there was an investigation, a series, really, over a period of decades. Because, I mean, the guy's been missing for at this point for like, you know, 50 flipping years. Right. Um, yeah. I, by the way, he, he was actually... Uh, He's been missing for 46 years, and he, he disappeared in 1975, okay? So the reason why I mentioned that it was very nice and timely that this happened is literally three weeks ago, we know that the Pulaski Skyway is being researched by the FBI to find something. And we know that the people who are searching were previously working on a missing persons case of a certain missing person named Jimmy Hoffa. And well, the Newark and Detroit airfield offices, they, they given certain data and they have used ground penetrating radar and they have found something that is shaped like a barrel, uh, you know, like a steel drum. A bit odd, isn't it? Yeah. A bit odd. Why would a steel drum be just buried under the Pulaski skyway? So, yeah, we don't really know for sure. There's been a lot of claims. There's, uh, there's even been a really wonderful movie made about it uh, called The Irishman. But <laughs> we don't really know for sure. But it is worth noting that um, a lot of the people who did claim to have uh, done this, a lot of evidence kind of dismisses that, including DNA evidence. Cool. So, And that goes double for The Irishman instance, uh, uh, Sheeran. Yeah, a lot of people thought Frank Sheeran did, but there's a lot of evidence that suggests that he did not. So there's so many rumors at this point, so many jokes at this point about him being missing. that It's kind of staggering. Um, People say he's under every football field in America and a number of things. But what's interesting is three weeks ago, the FBI was looking expressly at the Pulaski Skyfield. So hmm. interesting. I can't yeah. wait to see what comes of that. It'd be cool if anything yeah. does. We'll see. Probably not. We'll yeah, see. Probably, probably not. We didn't find nothing. Now shut your mouth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it's just one of those mysteries that I can't fathom. I think it's it. a mystery because the people who are searching don't really want him found. Yeah. Because yeah. the people who write their checks are probably important people who don't want him found. Well, at this point, what's it matter? Like, I just want to... I don't know. I don't know. Well, I mean, we're not going to find out. I don't feel like we'll ever know where he is, but it's fun to think about. And it's given James the hiccups. James, thank you for talking about Jimmy Hoffa. No problem. The Hoffinator. The Hoffinator. Guys, we're not going to draw from the vase this week. Because next week, our next episode comes out on Christmas Eve Eve. 
Christmas Eve. So we're going to talk about some holiday historical stories. So mm. yeah, we're going to dive back in history and talk about some things. So sweet. Sounds good. Yeah. So do you guys have anything you want to add before we say Arrivederci? Um, our music is by Grant Cook. You can find it on Amazon Music, Spotify, iTunes, anywhere you listen to music. Well, I guess if that's it, you guys. Until next time, we hope that you can keep, keep it, it straight. straight. Yeah.